Hello there and welcome to TWM, the weekly roundup programme of the Scottish Football Monitor. Asking the questions the mainstream media will not ask, right here at sfm.scot. Hi, I'm John Cole and this week all the action is in the lower leagues as the Championship and the Leagues 1 and 2 all draw to a close. We've got happy faces in Edinburgh, Paisley, Arbroath, Livingston and East Kilbride, but they're in contrast to the advancing ageing processes uh, that have begun at Hamilton, Motherwell, Inverness and Cowdenbeath. Yes, the league could be saying goodbye to Cowdenbeath, but Hearts are definitely saying farewell to the grand old main stand at Tynecastle, as Anne Budge and the foundation of Hearts plans are put into effect with the impressive new structure that currently sits toweringly and menacingly over the old. Will it be missed, or is it just another old geezer being trampled by the brash new world we inhabit? We'll be asking the Foundation of Hearts Chairman Stuart Wallace what emotions are swirling around in his head as the old edifice departs the scene. Also, the Scottish Cup final phony war has begun. Celtic are in a full outrage mode over the allocation of tickets for the match, specifically the reports that Aberdeen may have 700 more fans at the match than Brendan Rodgers' team. In the wake of the Glasgow Derby last week at Ibrox, the mainstream media have turned on Pedro Cachina and are beginning to ask questions of Rangers owner Dave King. Ooh, wonder how that'll turn out. Meanwhile, in Glasgow's High Court, David Murray and others have been giving evidence in the Craig White trial. The court has been hearing that Murray may have been incentivised to sell Rangers, whilst the man himself has reappeared on the rich list. For Rangers fans, the optics, as they say, are not good. Also, the sad news of Aaron Lennon's mental health problems has woken up the world of football to the problem itself. Lennon, we trust, will recover, but will football address the issues sensitively? All this, and I'll be paying a wee tribute to the late Dennis Gillespie of Dundee United, Aloha and Breakin. Hang around for a couple of minutes and we'll get started. Well, as we already knew last week, Hibs won the championship. They were presented with the trophy at Easter Road after the match against St Mirren on Saturday, but the match had a huge significance also for the Paisley side, who needed at least a draw to keep them out of the relegation playoffs. In the event, a 1-1 draw made for no fan sad faces at all in the 20,000 crowd, 2,000 of whom had come from the West. You have to say that a Hibs Trophy haul over the past two seasons is impressive. A Scottish Cup last year, only losing that title at the semi-final stage this term to Aberdeen, and comfortable winners of a very competitive league this time. The challenge for Neil Lennon and his side is to hit the ground running next year in the Premiership, and I'm sure most will welcome the Edinburgh side's return to the top league. With their facilities and their potential support, they are absolutely a welcome addition. Similarly, there are no superlatives adequate enough to describe the impact that Jack Ross has had in St Mirren. The buddies were nine points adrift at the bottom of the table in December, but Ross's influence began to emerge at the turn of the year, and on the form of the last four months, they would actually have been challenging for the title and not been in a relegation battle. 
Falkirk secured second place in the championship with a 1-0 away win at Dumbarton and they'll now meet either Morton or Dundee United in the promotion semi-final on the 25th and the 28th of May after those teams fought out a 1-1 draw in Greenock a match which is now a rehearsal for their quarter-final playoff the first leg of which will be at the same place Greenock that is on Tuesday and the return at Tanadice on Friday First leg eh, of the final against the team finishing second bottom of the Premiership will be the following week. Air United were relegated from the Championship after their defeat eh, by Wraith Rovers, but the Kirkcaldy Club will now also face the third place side breaking, or League One third place side breaking in the semi final playoff this year as Wraith Rovers themselves ended up being second bottom. If successful, uh, Wraith Rovers will meet either Aloha or Airdrie who meet in the other semi uh, in the final Stenhouse Muir are relegated from League 1 with second bottom side Peterhead set to face League 2's third place team Montrose in the League 1 playoff semi the other tie will be between Forfar and Annan but the good news for SFM devotees is that the Red Lichties the side who feature on our slogan Scottish football needs a stronger broth have gone from strength to strength this year and have won the League 2 Championship and promotion to League 1. At the bottom of League 2, Cowden Beath are in serious danger of losing their league status if they can't overcome East Kilbride in the Pyramid Playoff. The Newtown team disposed of Bucky Thistle over two legs in their qualifier to get to this stage. Very exciting times in EK, nervy silences, I imagine, in Cowden Beath. With three games left in the Premiership, Aberdeen have pretty much tied up second place, I think. Their weekend will win at Tynecastle, match Rangers late show at Firhill, and with nine points in hand, as well as a goal difference way out of the reach of the Ibrox side, uh, I think Aberdeen are pretty much there. In turn, Rangers' nine-point advantage over St Johnson almost guarantees them third place. At the bottom though, Inverness uh, had a fight in 2-1-1 against Hamilton at the weekend. They now have 28 points, that's four behind Ackies and Motherwell, both of whom could still be sucked into that automatic relegation place. Or they could alternatively catch Dundee or Kelly or Ross County. It looks likely that Inverness will be relegated and that Hamilton or Motherwell will meet the winners of the championship semi-final in the playoffs. For certain, it's tough to take your eyes off the situation and there will be a lot of nerves around Inverness and in Lanarkshire over the next few weeks. The allocation of tickets for the Scottish Cup final is always something that creates controversy, especially when a wee diddy club has the temerity to get to a final. Even worse, when said diddy club gets more tickets than non-diddy club. Now, I've never at any time subscribed to the notion that clubs with bigger supports should get more cup final tickets than others. It's a cup final, for God's sake, and a 50-50 split within the bounds of the logistics imposed by the stadium layout has always seemed fair to me. And quibbling over a few hundred of a disparity seems a bit of a nonsense too. To be fair, I think Celtic are fronting up just in terms of keeping their supporters happy by saying that they're appalled. I don't think they'll be really too much troubled by a 700 disparity in the cup final. But there is something 
a bit less savoury going on here. And it was thrown up when the SFA, expert as ever, decided to pour paraffin over the flames. They said that the disparity in capacity at both ends of Hamden favoured Aberdeen in this instance, as Celtic's preferred end was slightly smaller than the other end. I wasn't aware there was a preferred end at, uh, at Hamden specified by Celtic, but it does throw a spotlight on the strange sociological and demographic world that the SFA inhabit. The allocation of ends at Hamden for various combination of sides who could meet in a semi-final or a final pays a lot more heed to 19th century religious and ethnic differences than it does to modern day Scotland. Too long to go into it here today, but the actual order is somewhere on sfm.scot and somebody will point you to that. Uh, information if you go into the blog as I say far too long to go to go into it uh, here but something should be done about it it is quite disgraceful in the 21st century on Sunday Hearts and Aberdeen played at Tyne Castle to a filled stadium it was also the last time the old Tyne Castle stand was used before being demolished sometime this week. This is all part of a plan set up by Anne Budge and the Foundation of Hearts to help progress the path towards rebuilding the club after their emergence from administration near liquidation a couple of years ago. The plan is supported by the financial contribution of Foundation members. They have a timetable to transfer ownership of the club from Anne Budge to the Foundation and financially and timetable-wise, it seems to be a great success. One of the visions of the foundation uh, uh, has described is to continue to play at Tynecastle, going against the accepted wisdom of a few years ago that they would perhaps have to move to expand. Consequently, a new stand, whose substructure is already in place at Tynecastle, towering above the iconic 100-year-old Archibald Leach edifice, will be in place for next season. The old stand will now be demolished, but its memories will live on. I asked the Foundation of Hearts chairman Stuart Wallace about his personal recollections of the old stand at Tynecastle. Stuart, first of all, thanks very much for uh, for coming on tonight. But uh, as an away supporter myself, uh, I've got many memories of the the old Tynecastle stand. But but the real memories, I suppose, belong to Hearts fans themselves, and it, it must be a a very bittersweet thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, funnily enough, I said over the weekend, you know, on, on television that a lot of fans, a lot of Hearts fans have got different memories for really different reasons. And if I tell you a couple of mines, one of which is kind of a wee bit amusing, I guess, and then a more recent one. One of the first matches I ever went to um, was in the main stand and it was actually a family friend that took me um, to Hearts against Motherwell. And there we were sat in the main stand and, you know, being about kind of six years old. He said to me, I, I said to this chap, uh, which team's Harps? And he says, the team in Maroon. And of course, Motherwell ran out in their chain strip and I jumped up in the air and started squealing <laughs> for Motherwell. But he was pulling me back down into my chair saying, wrong team, Stuart. So of course, that was the old memory. But the new one for me, somebody was saying, what's your, your main stand memory? And I said, you know, it's remarkably recent in that the championship season, I sat in the main stand with my older son. And I always remember the game against Rangers when we were 2-0 down towards the, I think it was the last day of the season, yeah. and Zifuk had scored a goal to pull us back into it, and there was about five minutes to go, and I just turned to my son and I said, can you just imagine if we scored now? Bang, in went the goal, and of course the stadium erupted singing, that's why we're champions. It was just, you know, <laughs> great memories, really different memories, but you're right, 
kind of bittersweet thing that ultimately has got to go. You know, when you walk around that stand, um, you recognise just how old it is. We all love it to pieces, but when you look at the plans for the new one, you think it's just going to take us on leaps and bounds, really. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it looks amazing. The the uh, the structure. I mean, it's, it's very formidable looking. I suppose is the is the best word I can find to describe it. But but it represents that old stand represents a lot of the club's history as well. Has, has it been easy persuading fans that the the new stand will add its own chapters to the history? I think it will, you know, I mean, everybody goes around, you know, when you go to the other stadiums and you look at some of the facilities that are there, you just think it's stunning some of the other stadiums you go and sit in. So I think as much as there is a nostalgia about it, you know, all of us at Tynecastle talking about bobbing around the pillars to try and see the goal type mm. thing. And you think, well, that's not, that, you know, that does speak to a stand that's 100 years old. I think it's funny, you know, it's been well versed that when you talk to other supporters of other teams and say which stadium do you love visiting you know quite often Tynecastle under the lights on a midweek will be cited to say yeah. you know midweek it's a tight ground it's a great atmosphere both sets of fans are up for it it really does pulse and they've always said that you know I saw John Robertson say the unique thing he'll miss is that kind of foot stamping that goes on in the main yeah. stand but the one thing you see now with the trust being in place journalist said to me recently Tynecastle will absolutely look like a stadium when it's finished because the new stand has been built very much in the image of the three other stands yeah. and it will be you know that kind of cauldron and you just hope as I've sat now in the main stand I'm a Wheatfield guy myself but when I sit in the main stand you know I get some of the matches I've sat there this year when the fans are really in the moment it just washes across to you from the Wheatfield stand and you think now that's just going to bounce right back at them so there's maybe that bit of atmosphere and noise gets lost over the old stand actually now it's just going to be captured because of you know how dominating it, the, the new stand's going to look and the way it will hold the atmosphere. Well, well, that that, that will be a, a positive, I think, because one of the things that I always remember, one of my great memories of, of the stand was uh, my fiftieth birthday. Actually, I was I, I was I was working uh, in the stand that day, commentating on a game between Hearts and Celtic, and. And the Hearts were winning 2-0 at, at half-time and w- when we were in the press room at half-time, everybody was commenting on just how it was the, it was a tidal wave of support for the for, for the Hearts fans and the atmosphere in the stadium that had actually taken Hearts to that 2-0. To, to that and it was, you know, and it, it's we, we all agreed that we thought it was probably the best atmosphere in Scottish football. It was, it was just such an intimidating place to go. I suppose especially if you're a, if you're an away fan as well. It's, it, it, it's, 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 it's very important. But, but I'm, I'm glad glad that you don't think it's going to lose that atmosphere because I think that would be that, that would be a sorry thing but w- w- one other thing I was going to ask you about and you'll probably not like me for this very much but my <laughs> earliest memory of of that stand was Wally Waddle running out onto it after Kilmarnock beat Hearts in the last day of the season in 1965 uh-huh. and, I, and, I, and you know obviously you know I mean it's it's, it's long enough ago now it's probably the winds of field but, but, uh, but it yeah. wasn't a good day for Hearts but it was such an iconic picture that you know you know with the with, with the hearts crest uh, above Waddle's head as he was running out onto the park and I think that was his last game as a manager as well for uh, for Kilmarnock but but it's it's seen so many moments like that you know the 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 the, the old stand in the old stadium and and certainly it's to be hoped I think by by most of us in in, in Scottish football whether we're heart supporters or not uh, that the new stand will be able to fill those big shoes I think that's right. You know, some of the, as you say, some of the imagery, some of the iconic moments. And funnily enough, I was born in '64, so <laughs> you don't remember it. No way. No, there's no way I could remember that. You know, my first memories. You know, my hero when I was a 
young lad who I, I got to meet uh, recently through the foundation actually was Donald Ford oh, who yeah. was very sort of generous to the foundation and you see some of the pictures of him my real football supporting time was uh, John Robertson was my hero yeah. um, you know at the same age as John seen, seen him score so many goals but I remember coming out of uh, the old first division and I think one of our first games was against Hibs um, we won the match 3-2 and from memory you know John scored well, here I'll show my age here the cross came in from that stand. That was in the shed, as it was then. Uh-huh. But the cross came in from in front of that stand from Jimmy Bone, who was playing for Hearts at the <laughs> time, having been at St. Mintz along, and we'd all just caught it with a header straight in the back of the net, 3-2. And, you know, th- but you're right, whether it's as a visiting fan, you know, sometimes when, even today, when the visitors, it's normally Celtic or Rangers or Hibs, I've got that entire stand. When they're on top, they can generate their own atmosphere. And you know that, sitting as a Hearts fan, you're thinking, blimey, the noise that's washing out of the Roseburn stand here is incredible. And I think, you know, you look at clubs like Celtic, Rangers, um, even Hibs, they've done a great job to kind of create an atmosphere inside the new stadiums. And for me, when you're looking at that new stand, I can't remember, is it 7,500 that's going to hold? You think when you put 7,500 extra Hearts fans in there, Hearts fans, you know, a couple of moments this year where it's not been there, but no doubt it will come next year. In those days when the atmosphere is washing down, to have that at the other side of the stadium is going to be incredible for any visiting supporter to hear. In the moment I uh, saw it this season when I witnessed it, I was in the stadium, it was the night before our Foundation of Hearts AGM when we beat Rangers 4-1. And I remember turning up at the AGM the next night and, um, you know, saying, God, you know, if that's what if that's what's ahead yeah. with a new team in place and a new management team, you know, mark me up for this one because that was just breathtaking football. I mean, I walked out of the match at the end of the night with my mate and said, champagne football tonight. And the atmosphere spoke to that. So I, I've got no doubt, you know, I mean, I've got all, all my own memories. I've got all the imagery of that stand, as you say, whether it's... Willie Waddle moments or other teams or, you know, Zifuk scoring, you always remember those things, but I've got no doubt that, you know, first first match next season when we're at home and the place is, you know, bound to be thumping busy, it's just going to be unbelievable. It'll be fantastic. And sure, we all look forward to that as well. As we say in this part of the world, we, we, we wish you all the health to wear it and uh, we hope that the, the new <laughs> stand is a, is, is a big, big success. And I hope that we'll uh, be hearing from you uh, perhaps later on in the year as well uh, about the Foundation of Hearts in, in, in more detail as well. Definitely, definitely. Sure, a pleasure to, to speak to you. Thanks very much again. You too. Thanks, John. Stuart Wallace there, the chairman of the Foundation of Hearts, give me an idea for a subject for a future programme. Donald Ford, what a player he was. Seriously dodgy moustache, but what a player he was. I'm sure that Donald will be featuring in TWM within a few weeks. And of course, as Stuart also just said there, he's going to come back at the end of the season and talk to us about the aspirations uh, of the Foundation of Hearts and the Hearts in general uh, for next season and beyond. So we look forward to that. The Craig White trial continued in Glasgow this week. The former Rangers chairman, of course, faces charges including one of pretending to have funds to facilitate the purchase of Rangers. Things the court heard from testimony up to this week include claims that Rangers had discussed folding the club over EBTs as early as 2010, that Lloyds Bank was, uh, quote, putting the squeeze on Rangers to clear their debts with them, that Rangers had used ticketers in the past but did not disclose the deal to fans, and in fact, 
had um, a £4 million facility with Ticketus at the time of the takeover. David Murray's testimony that the club had used EBTs and that they gave Rangers a chance to, quote, get players we perhaps wouldn't be able to afford. Lloyd's Bank, uh, where uh, the court heard keen to reduce their exposure to the Murray Group, which included Rangers. A former Lloyd's executive told the court that a threat to withdraw banking facilities if the Craig White deal was not done by the board was leverage to be used against them. And the court heard that David Murray had a deal with Lloyd's, that if he sold Rangers by a certain date, he'd be able to regain ownership of Murray International Metals. Could I add that all that information I've just reported on is just what was said in court. None of it is to be taken as fact. That'll be for the courts to decide. What is being reported is what witnesses have said and we draw no conclusions from that one way or the other. What we hope is that the reporting assists in your understanding of what is happening. We can now welcome James Dolman of Byline who has of course been tweeting live from the court throughout the trial and uh, most of the material that uh, were actually used in that uh, earlier segment uh, it comes from James's tweets. James is an award-winning journalist uh, whose speciality is reporting from the courts and he's been very familiar with all the various Rangers-related litigation that has filled the earth pages for a long time now and his temperate and factual reporting of these matters has put a check on some of the real runaway speculation that's become a feature of these cases. James, thanks for speaking to us again today. This morning the judge had other commitments. Well, what was that all about? Well, it's something we knew from the beginning of the trial that she had more a, day, a business day in Edinburgh today. So we've known since the beginning we wouldn't be sitting today. So it, was a, it wasn't like the jury thing last week or the juror thing last week that you, you, you all turn up and get sent home? No, no, but we all knew and we all knew at the beginning of the trial we wouldn't be working today. You did warn us a couple of weeks ago uh, that, uh, that the testimony could get quite detailed, uh, it could get quite technical and, and quite tedious. And I'm, I'm definitely with you in the first two. It's been detailed and, and perhaps technical this week, but it really hasn't been very tedious at all, has it? It's all been kind of like eye-watering stuff, a lot of the stuff that's been coming out. Yeah, it's been very interesting information. There was also three and a half hours of a 27-page share agreement being read out word for word, which, you know, you, know, you can understand what that maybe would be like. Um, no, there's been a lot of, a lot of details. The two witnesses we've had this week with um, Mr. Shanks, who was a relationship manager at Lloyds Bank, and he was responsible for the relationship between the bank and Murray Group and Rangers Football Club, and uh, Mr. McGill, who was the financial director of Murray Group, who also sat on the Rangers board. So a lot of detail of the finances coming out and the shape of the exact shape of the deal between the Murray Group and Craig White. I think, for me anyway, the, the the most significant thing that seemed to come out, and again, it's something that doesn't necessarily Im- impact on the, the guilt or innocence of the accused, but more of it has, has a wider context, and, and that was the idea that, 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 that David Murray um, was, according to testimony anyway, uh, incentivised to, to sell Rangers to Craig White for a pound so that uh, that he could get his, his, his inter- Murray International Metals business back. Well, the evidence we saw was a letter written by David Murray to the bank. And in the letter, to explain the overall situation, the Murray Group is, according to its own financial director, technically insolvent by 2009. Its debts massively see its assets. The bank and Murray Group get together and set up a project called Project Charlotte. And the idea of Project Charlotte is to dispose of the assets of Murray Group. It's get as much money for them as we can, rather than throwing them all into the market at the same place. And so that was the background. And what Murray also wanted was the metals business, 
which he had a great affection for. That's how he's made the money taken out of this deal and sold to his family, his, his family personally. And it seems that in this letter, Murray asked the bank if they can do that, and the bank respond, "If you dispose of Rangers Football Club PLC, then we can do it." So that appears to show there was a quid pro quo in the arrangement. Right, and of course, we wouldn't allowed to extrapolate that and how that affects the relationship between between Murray and White. Uh, of course, but but um, the, the Mike McGill, uh, who was uh, the 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 other witness uh, this week, what, what significant testimony did you think it came from from him? I mean, I, it seemed to me from your tweets and the reports for the court that that uh, that Donald Finley was was fairly aggressive towards him. I don't know if I get. I, We've had a discussion before. It's his defence lawyer's job to be robust with witnesses. Yeah, uh, and that's his job, and that's exactly what he's doing. And you know, the, the procurator, uh, the advocate, deputy, Mr. Prentice can be very tough with witnesses too. When it's his turn to be cross-examining the other side's witnesses, mm-hmm. that's how our court system works. But no, there was a lot of things to ask, Mr. McGowan. I think a key moment for me, and I think for people watching, and again, you know, it's, it's the issue of the. Um, Checks they took on Mr. White before selling to him, and there was a quote um, from Mr. McGill where he said, "Essentially, we knew that the journalists in Scotland would all be investigating him." Yeah, uh, which I thought was a, a telling quote. On and he did confirm to Mr. Finlay that he they took new they didn't hire a company. Because Finlay said, "Did you hire a company to look into Mr. White's background?" And he replied, "No, we didn't." So that's significant as well. So that shows you again that Mr. Finlay has raised that issue of due diligence in terms of each site's due diligence and things. So that, I thought, was an interesting thing to come out. The, 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 the chap from the, the bank, the uh, what did you call him, the, the customer relations manager or, or whatever, Ian Shanks, what, what, what was the real significance of him for, for, the, for the point of view of the, uh, the prosecution, you know, like giving evidence uh, as a... I know there's no such thing as a prosecution witness, but, but you know what I mean, it was the prosecution that called him. Uh, the, the crown, we don't, we don't have a prosecutor. Crown a bigger problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, the thing about Mr. Smith is he could testify to certain important matters. He had discussions with Craig White. Mm-hmm. Don't forget that so he'd met Mr. White. Also, the, the, the defence especially wanted to explore the bank's attitude. What, what, was, what was the bank interested in doing? And what Mr. Shanks made it very clear was that after Bank of Scotland had been taken over by Lloyds, Lloyds wanted out of the sector, they just wanted out of football entirely. And they were looking at all times that was the motivation to get their debt paid back eighteen million pounds they owed and to get out of football. Uh, so I think that was significant. I think the second thing that struck me was a letter shown to the court from um Mr Shanks to Rangers the day the deal was done and the debt was paid, when he immediately says I want we want all your accounts in positive balance by the end of today with through credit card facilities and back payments facilities from on the very day that it was done. Uh, and I think Mr Finlay said that was a bit brutal, wasn't it? And Mr Shanks was, no, that's just how it goes. Also, there was a suggestion that Mr Shanks didn't deny that when White Takeover was going through, the bank threatened, not threatened, sorry, word, told a member of the Rangers board that they would draw banking facilities from the club if they didn't do the deal with Mr White, which is significant. I mean, he even said that, he was asked about this, is this not a bit tough? He said, well, it's just leverage in a negotiation. Hmm. So certainly you can see that the bank was playing a role within the whole overall situation. It wasn't just sitting around. And, you know, we heard from Mr Shanks was involved in the whole process, which is why the prosecution called and I know that we're not supposed to extrapolate anything, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really quite diligent about about not drawing any conclusions here. But 
it, it does seem that a lot of the comments that we've had on the blog, uh, you know, the, the people who have been observing uh, and, and they making comment on some of the tweets uh, and from yourself and, and from others, are that it, it seems that the, the defence appear to be getting more information out of the witnesses than the Crown. That's, each side of says get a different thing to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, so the Crown's job, it's important to do, I know, I, I'm not, it's not just a pedantic point during the Crown and the prosecution. In Scotland, the Crown's job isn't to prosecute the way it is in England to get a conviction. No, that's what the task to do. In Scotland, the Crown are advocates and their job is just to present the evidence to the jury to make the decision. Mm-hmm. Up until only the very end, they actually make an argument. So, what the prosecution has proven is various things that it has to prove. It has to prove there was a share purchase agreement. It has to prove here it is, so it's read any evidence, so everyone knows that that share purchase agreement exists. And that's going to become, as a trial, a very key document. What everyone agreed to in those 27 pages is going to become very key in understanding the, the overall picture of the case. One uh, thing that struck me about that was how how de- detailed the document it was, and it covered such things as if the, if the Corbyn and the administration was quite heavily covered in the share pots, yeah. and what role the money groups still have within the overall business was very... Uh, even um, Mr McGill, who I, you know, I expect was involved in drawing up the document, did concede that some of the causes in it were, in his words, unusual. Unusual in the sense... Well, the specific one he said was the, um, the non-embarrassment agreement. The neither side would publish anything to the detriment of the other. And that's an unusual thing to me. Mr McGill said, I'm, I'm not an expert on share purchase agreements, but I'm sure Mr McGill is. And he agreed that it was an unusual clause to be put into a share contract. The other thing that you, you were talking about, you alluded to it twice, and that was you know how detailed the, that share purchase agreement document was, and it was all 27 pages of it were, were read out. The, the, this puts a, a, an enormous burden on a, a jury of lay people, doesn't it, to, to have to deal with things like that? It's true, but the purpose behind that one, fun enough, isn't for the jury, because the jury are given written copies of the agreement. They've got, they've all got a copy of the agreement. It's for the courts, for the people watching, who we can't see the documents. Hence, it's general that things that are read in the evidence. It's, it seems archaic, but it's the way the system works. As I've said before, everything needs to be proved and done publicly. You can't do things in private. So part of the reason the whole thing's read out is so that people listening in the public gallery can find out what's been, what's going on. Is is it? Okay to speculate how how long the the judge at the end of all this is going to have to spend with the jury going over points of law simply because of the 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 weight of the evidence in in, in that document in itself. Yeah, I think it's a bit it's a bit early to speculate on the judge's summing up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the judge's job at the end. No, I'm talking about the length of the summing up and about how detailed it would be, rather than you know, well, you know, yeah. here's, here's here's a couple of bullet points, jury, away you go. It, it's it's going to be a bit more detailed than that, isn't it? Yeah, well, what what the, it's called the charge in Scottish law, and what the judge does is go over all the evidence the jury have heard and what legal things they have to think about in relation to that evidence. I find it quite useful. I always find a judge sum up very useful in a case because it brings everything together. And, and sort of summarise this in a way. But it can take some time. The phone hacking one, I think, took two weeks. Two and weeks? Summing up to two weeks. I don't oh. think this was going to be two weeks. <laughs> I think the, the, the judge will take whatever time she needs to possibly marshal the evidence and the arguments for the jury to understand. Uh, well, Mr McGill uh, is, is still a, a witness, isn't he? He's not been, uh, you know, the, the, they're not finished with him yet. No, no, he's still he's, he's cross examination has finished. So that uh, that that that's definitely going to be continuing tomorrow. Then that there'll, there'll be somebody in court tomorrow. 
I hate using the word definitely when we all know that a hundred things could happen okay, between right, okay. tomorrow. But, um, <laughs> right, there's but nothing the scheduled. Moment, the, I mean, is it scheduled? The normal course, on, yeah. yeah, yeah. The normal course of events would be that Mister Finley would continue because he's going to go tomorrow morning. James, thanks very much again uh, for uh, uh, for your time, and uh, we we'll hope we can speak to you again soon about it as well. But uh, have have a great day in court tomorrow, and and every other day for that matter. <laughs> Cheers, thanks for a lovely speech. All right. Cheers. And you can catch up with James's work at byline.com. Search for James Dolman. As we alluded to in that piece with James, there is a lot of hysteria, a lot of speculation going on in social media and in the mainstream media over these court proceedings. Speculating on the innocence or guilt of a defendant or on the honesty of a witness is most definitely contempt of court territory. For obvious legal reasons, we want to stay on the right side of the law and avoid unnecessary problems with the courts. But we also want to ensure that we are not party to contaminating people with speculation that may lead to a defendant being mistakenly either convicted or acquitted. The point of a trial is to establish what the facts of a case are, not to merely validate so-called information or inferences that have been drawn before any legal process has actually begun. We are asking everyone at SFM therefore to refrain from posting anything that implies guilt or innocence, truthfulness or untruthfulness, or anything which repeats unsubstantiated rumour. We may think we know a lot, but it may well be the case, as in fact it has been from my point of view, that we discover we know less than we thought. So please keep that in mind. And now, just before we go, let's talk about Dennis Gillespie of Dundee United. Dennis Gillespie, who remains one of the United's all-time top goal scorers, was born on the 8th of January 1936 in Dentoker and raised in Clydebank. After school, he played as a centre-forward for Clydebank Juveniles and after his national service, he went to Dentoker Hibs, where he was a colleague of Celtic and Manchester United legend Pat Crerand. Dennis was spotted by then Alwa manager Jerry Kerr and he joined up at Recreation Park in 1957. A regular in his two seasons at Alwa, he was already known at Tannadice after he had terrorised United in a humiliating 7-1 home defeat to the Wasps in April 1958, Dennis scoring twice that day. He also scored two for Alwa in a 3-1 win over United at Recreation Park the following season and it seemed... Inevitable that when Kerr left Alloa to become United manager in June 1959, he quickly returned to his old club to secure Dennis's services. Now an inside forward, he signed for United early in the 1959-60 season for £3,000. Making his debut for United in the 5th of September 1959 against St Johnson and scoring his first goal a few days later in the 9th of September against Dumbarton at Boghead, he turned out to be an inspired acquisition. A forceful attacking player, he was a vital part of the side that won promotion to Division 1 that season, finishing as second top scorer with 19 goals, including a hat-trick against Queen's Park. He was a regular in the side for the next four seasons and kept up his scoring rate, finishing as the club's top scorer in their first year back in the top flight and bagging further hat-tricks against Infermline and Wraith Rovers. A big favourite with the fans, Dennis was also the first United player to turn out at senior international level for Scotland when he played for the Scottish League against the League of Ireland at Dalliment Park in Dublin in 1961. 
During this time, uh, Dennis was a crucial part of the United side that achieved a few firsts for the club. Their first semi-final, that was the Scottish Cup in 1963, their first League Cup semi-final the following year in 1964, and their first major final, the Summer Cup, in 1965, where they lost 3-2 on aggregate to Motherwell. Also, their first, their highest ever league position at the time, uh, when they finished fifth place in Division 1 at the end of 1965-66 season, and... It's a lot of hands here. And their first venture in European football. Dennis Gillespie was there for all of that. After reaching the age of 30 in 1966, Dennis took on more of a support role, playing in a deeper wing half position, but he was still a regular on the side. He was in the lineup uh, when United faced and defeated Barcelona in the club's first venture into European football, as well as, as well as both legs against Juventus in the next round. In the summer of 1967, Dennis, uh, on loan from United, travelled to the US to represent Dallas Tornado. And by season 68-69, he was a regular right half in the United team and revelled in his new role for two seasons, playing in more European ties against Newcastle, Grasshoppers and Sparta Prague. He spent his last two years at United playing mainly in the reserves, passing on the benefit of his experience to younger players. He was offered a coaching role in April 1972, but he elected not to accept as he wanted to continue playing, and he went to Brecon City. Having only been booked once during uh, his whole career at Tannadice, Dennis was now playing as a sweeper and was booked three times in his first season at Glebe Park. He remained there for four years before retiring in 1976. In May 1973, Dennis was awarded a testimonial by the United, in which several guest players, including Andy Penman, Alan Golzine and Frank Monroe, joined his United colleagues and a Dundee 11 in front of a crowd of more than 10,000 to pay tribute to a real club legend. Dennis Gillespie passed away, aged 65, on the 5th of June 2001, after a long illness. In January 2008, he was one of the first players inducted into the Dundee United Hall of Fame. His stats read something like this. From 1957 to 1959, he played for Aloe Athletic, appeared 56 times for the Wasps, scoring 40 goals. Bit of, bit of a return there. 1959 to 1972, he played for United, 455 appearances and 115 goals. And from 1972 to 1976, uh, with Brecon City, he had 88 appearances and no goals. And of course, there was that uh, Scottish League Cup in 1961 against the League of Ireland in Dublin. My memory of Dennis Gillespie is that he was a coveted ABNC footballer card. In my young days, I used to love collecting them, and his name was one of those magical ones of players you haven't seen, but whose image and pen pick are embedded in your mind as a youngster, and by extension forever. I also saw him score against Celtic at Celtic Park. It was a header from an Origin Person concert, uh, corner, which was the turning point in the game favouring United, who went on to win that match 3-2. That was 50 years ago last week, and it was the second time that season that a Gillespie-inspired United beat the team that would, in a matter of days, become the European champions. I still have that footballer's card today. Dennis Gillespie was a keeper. He would walk into any Scottish Premiership side today. Take my word for it, he would. In today's parlance, he had a great engine. He was a tireless box-to-box player. Strong, great shot, a hard tackle and a great ability to read the game and to see a pass. 
Dennis Gillespie was one of those players who played football with a smile. It was on his face all the time. He's in the Arabs Hall of Fame. The D United certainly haven't forgotten him, and nor should we. Don't forget that you can subscribe to SFM Podcasts, including the Weekly Monitor, and you can do that at podcast.sfm.scot or just go to iTunes and look for SFM. It's free, so please go there and subscribe or have a look at our previous episodes. Well, that's it for this week, folks. Thanks very much to James Dolman once again uh, for his contributions on the Craig White trial. Thanks very much to Stuart Wallace for joining us and sharing his memories of the old heart stand. And thanks to Dennis Gillespie for all the memories. And of course, to you for being at one once again with TWM at sfm.scot. I've been John Cole. See you next time.